I'm Agnes Frimpston. And I am Ben Horton, <laughs> not Jacob Parakilas. <laughs> and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. I'm back. The coup is over. You're back, The attempted ben. coup. <laughs> I thought my job was on the line for about several days. Well, thank you so much, Jacob, yeah, for, for stepping in. He did slightly too good of a job. Well, that was the bit I was worried about. I'm he was no. there. He had good chat. He had good baby chat. He had good Muller chat. He I've got neither. What have we got? <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> Muller's over now. Baby chat. We've done Muller. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that whole thing is solved. No, Ben, no you were missed. You were missed. Um, but thank you, Jacob. But how are you, Agnes? How's it going? <laughs> well, I am in huge amounts of pain because I can't move my neck. But other than that, I'm fine. Dear listeners, it is quite interesting because <laughs> every time that Agnes wants to turn around and say something to me to my face, she has to turn her entire chair <laughs> to point towards me because she can't move her neck. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm also crying. I, cry, I cried twice yesterday because I coughed. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, sorry it's pathetic. Um, anyway, you've been to Toronto. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. back. I finally, I finally got back, and I've, I've been in the UK for two whole weeks. Oh my god! Like, it's, uh, it's a revelation. It's a revelation. But yeah, Canada was great. Good. Canada on Brexit Day. Yeah. Which turned out not to be Brexit Day. I mean, when is Brexit Day? Technically today. Halloween. Friday? Halloween. Oh yeah. god. Halloween, which just feels like oh. a cliche. Is is this approaching caricature territory? It's gone beyond it, hasn't it? I mean, what are we going to do on Halloween? I mean, f- good on Europe for setting it as Halloween, I think. But, yeah. Good oh. chat, Europe. Yeah, thanks, Europe. <laughs> thanks, Europe. Banter. Um, yeah, well, talking okay. of good chat, I had some good feedback about the intro to our podcast today. Oh, you did? Well, not today, this week. Thanks so much, Tom, mm. my friend Tom. What did Tom say? Tom said that he thought maybe our chat at the beginning was not that interesting. Blimey. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that must have been the Jacob week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So shout out to Tom for that lovely okay, feedback. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Um, we've noted your concerns and we tend to ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> so who did we speak to this week, Ben? This week, we've got a really interesting interview that both of us did yep. with Tim Benton, who is a distinguished visiting fellow here at Chatham House. And he is one of the leading experts in total mm-hmm. in the world yeah. on food security. He is. And basically, we had a really, yeah, really interesting chat about the Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN, mm-hmm. which is the main sort of international body that talks about agriculture and hunger and diets and how we should be developing our food system. And in a couple of months, I think, there's going to be an election for the new director general of this organization. So we got Tim into Chatham House, sat him down and said, why should we care? Tell and actually, turns it. out, we really, really should care. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Ended that interview in a big way. <laughs> quite fretty, but also with both of our stomachs rumbling heavily. Yes, yes well, <laughs> it's not often that you get to just talk for an hour exclusively <laughs> about food, about food and, <laughs> and not have any. We yeah. definitely should have had a cheese and wine no, but then we would have worried about like whether they were sustainably sourced and, and like whether there was any antimicrobial resistance involved in purchasing or producing those. God, I'm stressed about food now. Anyway, it's a really interesting interview um, and covers a really wide range of topics. So let's have a listen. Okay, so today we're joined by 
Professor Tim Benton, who prior to recording this podcast told us he couldn't remember all of the things that he did. So I'm going to try and uh, <laughs> try and work out exactly what. But according to the Chatham House website, Tim is a distinguished visiting fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department at Chatham House. And he's also the Dean of Strategic Research Initiatives at the University of Leeds. And from 2011 to 2016, he was the champion of the UK's Global Food Security Programme, a multi-agency partnership of the UK's public bodies, government departments, devolved governments and research councils with an interest in the challenges around food, an issue close to my heart, although (laughs) I suspect for the wrong reasons. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Um, I should point out as well, my erstwhile colleague Agnes is also in the studio. Hello, I'm here. Um, So today we're here to talk about food security in the round but what has brought us together today is the fact that in june the un food and agriculture organization will be electing a new director general this position is as important as any other global leaders post the fao is a central plank of the un system and its leader frames the thinking on food and agriculture globally and influences policy on almost any issue to do with what food we grow and eat so it's an important job and we wanted to just take some time um, on Undercurrents this week to have a talk about what are the massive challenges facing the global food system and how the FAO plays into that. So, Tim, maybe you could just begin by just telling us a bit more about the FAO and sort of how it works. And Okay, so the, the FAO was founded in 1945, if I remember correctly, with a mission to improve agricultural productivity, rural livelihoods, and move the world towards a world where there is economic growth and ending hunger on a global basis. And so following the Second World War, there was a very legitimate focus on the issue of how do you drive economic growth and how do you pull people out of hunger through agricultural productivity to avoid some of the issues of global famines and People being malnourished in the sense of undernourished and uh, all of that sort of thing. It currently, so it's a a special agency of the United Nations, so 196 countries involved. It employs about 12,000 people, works actively in about 130 nations, spends $2.5 billion per year on projects and staff related to agriculture, productivity, food systems making the world a better place through ensuring that agriculture is done increasingly sustainably, productively, and with a view to nutrition and health. But its core mission is really about tackling the challenges of food insecurity. And how long does the DG stay in power for? How long is their term? So the DG is elected for a four-year period and can be re-elected once, so... Same as the US president. <laughs> right. And who is the DG currently and, and what's been kind of, what's marked out their time? So the, the DG is a charming man called Jose Graziano de Silva. He's been in post coming up to eight years, hence the election now. I think the principal issue over the last eight, ten years has been a recognition that the real focus of the UN FAO for the last 50, 60 years has been in increasing productivity and uh, providing food to the starving. And one of the things that has come up very strongly in the last 10 years or so 
is that that process of just concentrating on growing more food is becoming counterproductive to the UN mission, the FAO mission in particular, because by increasing productivity, making food cheaper, making food more available, you're also encouraging people to waste it because food is cheap enough to be wasteable. You're encouraging people to overeat it because most of the calories that are produced come from a small handful of crops that are incentivised by the production-led system. So you're driving obesity. Climate change is influenced by large-scale agriculture, particularly agriculture of livestock, red meat production, dairy production. So climate change is being driven by our agricultural system and because we all rely on food... We are threatened by climate change's impacts on our agricultural system. So over the last five to ten years, there has been much more of a kind of thinking process, which is now starting to lead into action, about tackling malnutrition in all its forms. So that's underconsumption of calories, so the traditional kind of hunger challenge, underconsumption of various nutrients like iron or zinc or protein, And that's often called hidden hunger because you can be malnourished but not starving. Mm. And then malnourishment in the sense of you've got too many calories but you might otherwise be relatively okay for micronutrients. And that's the kind of agenda around the overconsumption, the obesity. And increasingly overweight and obesity, if you look in the rich world, it's typically associated with poverty because nutritious diets are more expensive and if you look in the poor world almost all countries now there is some degree of obesity related to overconsumption of calories at the same time that there is malnourishment associated with undernutrition so that's the the double or triple burden depending on how you phrase it of malnutrition and Graziana de Silva said the other day that obesity is now a globalized problem and it's not a, we're de- FAO dealing with the starving and then the rich world is responsible for and dealing with obesity. It is now a common problem that every country, including the UK, has people who are underweight, has people that have micronutrient deficiency and have people that are have obesity and the diseases associated with obesity associated with poverty. So even for us... There is an issue about food security and ensuring that people have access to healthy diets in an affordable way. So obviously under the food banner, there's, there's, there's a global health element. There's also the you know climate change element. But to focus on the health bit, as you were talking about just then, I do think we've still got this idea that um, malnourishment is that Victorian idea of starving children, very, very thin children rather than malnourishment looking like something else or equating poverty to malnourishment. How do you go about dealing with those three different types of malnourishment on a global scale? So it's interesting. One of the overall driving causes of obesity is that by focusing on growing yields and by having countries that have had agricultural policy driving up yields and agricultural research driving up yields and trade policy to make very large global markets for those that can produce large amounts, then it has kind of driven the system towards 
concentrating on the fewest crops that you can have the biggest impact in. And so we've got a 50% of the world's calories come from wheat, rice and maize. 75% of the world's calories come from another five crops, including sugar and potatoes and so on. So part of the issue is that by focusing on agricultural yields above all else to provide calories, we have ended up in a global situation where almost every country bases its diet on calories, not nutrition. Mm. And a lot of the problems in common, whichever country in the world are you, you live in, are that we need to have a nutritious diet which is most easily associated with a greater diversity of fruit and vegetables, less processed grains, more whole grains in the rich world particularly, but increasingly in parts of the poorer world, eating less livestock produce. And so there is a kind of, if the world converged on eating diets as per dietary guidelines around the world, it would solve a lot of issues mm. around the three components of malnourishment. And it would also solve a lot of issues around environmental degradation, the growth of monocultural landscapes, which are biodiversity deserts, and the fact that the livestock sector has about the same greenhouse gas driving of climate change as the entire transport sector. So there is a kind of common set of solutions that you can see that will solve a lot of the issues associated with our food system, which is not really fit for purpose, given how much it's driving ill health and environmental degradation. So what's the counter-argument to that? Because that sounds eminently sensible to me, but are there, are there, <laughs> are there countries or governments or uh, certain pressure groups that have a, have a different perspective on this? Why would this not happen? Well, I think if, if we really knew the answer to why would this not happen, even though it's eminently sensible, we wouldn't have climate change. <laughs> we wouldn't have plastic <laughs> polluting the ocean so that there's more plastic in the seas than there is fish. We wouldn't have the issue that the average population of mammals and birds and so on has gone down 50% in the last 20 or 30 years. It's a really you know. cheery episode, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks, <Jim. laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> uh, Don't you dare say that. Um, a, a lot of the issues are that we have designed a system at a time where it made sense to focus on growing more food because there were large segments of the populations that were truly vulnerable to not having enough food. We have designed a system that now swamps the world in the wrong sort of food that is so cheap that we can throw it away and it's so cheap that we can overeat it and yet we still have 800 million people who don't have access to even that. And so the system is very much locked in because... We have designed our trade networks around it. We've designed our food standards around it. We've designed our agricultural policy around these few crops. And we don't have, for example, the means, the easy means of transporting tomatoes or fruit and vegetables in the way that we do of transporting grains and beans that you can dry out and then just store in a shed. So, you know, there are reasons for the way our food system was designed as it is. And if you think just about the trade regulations, the WTO evolved from the a General Agreement to Tariffs and Trade, GATT, and that kind of evolved from the 1940s post-war Bretton Woods institutions. They've taken 30 or 40 years of negotiation, and they're really difficult politically to change. 
and we have a globalised food system which, for better or worse, sees cheaper food as a public good. And even in Brexit land, a lot of the benefit that the politicians talk about of Brexit is that food will become cheaper. And so there is this very entrenched idea that food has got to be cheap. And the consequence of food being cheap as a notion is that any country that can produce food cheaper than another by polluting more or a larger scale or more intensive gets a competitive advantage in the market. And any country that can sell more food, even if it's the wrong sort, to drive obesity or other ill health effects gets a competitive advantage. So there are lots of economic reasons why selling more and more and more and more underpins our effectively our economy built on growth. But when it comes to consumption growth of food, there is a biological limit beyond which it can't go. And if you're a company or a country that wants to sell more and more food to drive your economy, then you want to sell more and more food to drive your economy and recognising that actually saying to people don't eat so much becomes a politically difficult thing to do, especially if the don't eat so much comes with and it should cost you more. And also I think, because there's often this argument that why don't people just eat lentils and sardines? Um, Yummy. I know, delicious. Sounds but, appealing. But time, time heavy, this idea that people are consuming a lot of cheap food. They're consuming a lot of cheap food that is easy to, to deal with and doesn't require hours of cooking or hours of preparing. And they know that they can feel full quickly with no real like money. That's a poverty mm. issue. That's also an education issue and in some ways a class issue. Like The growth of veganism is very much amongst the middle classes and the upper classes. In the West. Yeah, so, so I would say what you said is largely true in the rich world, but increasingly it's also true in the poor world. Mm -hmm. I saw some interesting studies recently that were in Nairobi, which was uh, about the growth of supermarkets as a kind of retail environment instead of, you know, the old, more informal food markets. Mm. And people moving into purchasing from supermarkets take an immediate downstep in the nutritiousness of their diet because they're buying processed food. And if you look at almost any processed food in a supermarket anywhere in the world, it's going to be starch from one of the major grains, salt or sugar, depending on whether it's sweet or savoury, some generic protein, which will, if it's a vegetable protein, would be soya. If it's a meat protein, is increasingly to be likely to be low welfare chicken or some generic thing like that a generic vegetable oil which is most likely to be palm oil all of which has been driven by the desire to grow the economy for the palm oil producing nations and the consequences is that everybody around the world can get food relatively straightforwardly that as you say is more convenient but it's not transparent and one of the issues that I think we're going to face as we move ahead is starting to crack open the fact that this packet of food in a plastic or tinfoil or whatever it might be is delicious, it tastes good, it feels good, but it does us harm and it does the planet harm. But you can't tell that. And actually, if we were going to pay for the real cost of producing that food in terms of pollution 
air quality, you know, a lot of the city, the, the air quality in cities is not just caused by diesels, it's also caused by agriculture, mm. plumes of nitrous oxide drifting over cities, water quality and health impacts from water quality, pollution of carbon into the atmosphere and driving climate change, degradation of soils, loss of biodiversity, which are in turn undermines production in some parts of the world, especially pollinators. If you start paying for that pollution impact in the price of food, the price of food would go up and you wouldn't be able to afford the convenience. But then if you couldn't afford the convenience, buying the lentils and sardines or whatever it might be and cooking them at home is a way round that because you wouldn't necessarily spend more. You might even spend less. And one of my colleagues said to me the other day, said they had got a Fitbit a few years ago, and that made them aware, so this is the transparency thing, that made them aware how little they exercised. Mm. So they started looking for activities they could do standing up. So they got a standing desk, and then they went home and they said, well, why am I sitting down watching television with a ready meal as opposed to standing up, cooking, preparing... And once they started up standing up, cooking, preparing, the children came back into the kitchen and it started to be a social hub again and they started rediscovering the social benefits of home preparation of food and so on. So I think when you start trying to unpick environmental costs if you're interested in climate change or biodiversity or healthcare costs as associated with eating the wrong thing or the fitness costs to you of having a ready meal that you're eating on the run or eating in front of the television... When you start seeing all of those things together, then that might drive some of the social change and away from this. And as as I say, it's not entirely a ritual problem because Mm -hmm. the drive up of productivity of palm oil over the last two or three decades means that if you go in sub-Saharan Africa, they've always fried food when they've had food. But now they deep fry Mm -hmm. food a lot because the oil is now cheap. And so this issue of... The major crops becoming so dominant is becoming a global health care driver. Just a quick follow-up to that. It occurred to me that probably who who does the majority of the world's cooking? It's women. probably women still, isn't it? So, I mean, there's also that element of freeing up specific groups, people's oh, yes. time, and how that's changed quite dramatically. And so, you know, it can be lovely to bring, you know, to go back into the kitchen for it to create a hub if you have the time to do that. But there are lots of groups who maybe don't now as a result. So there's that. there must be a way Absolutely. to be gendered. I mean, there isn't a kind of <clears throat> ideal future, but when, when you look with under 50% of the world's population being a healthy weight, and depending on how you define malnutrition, and the statistics are not so good at the overlap between undernutrition and hidden hunger, but somewhere around 40% of the world's population are malnourished. And when you say, well, actually, somewhere 30 to 40%, depending on the estimate, of all greenhouse gas emissions from anthropogenic sources are being driven by climate change, and when you say a third of the world's land is degraded and most of that's associated with agricultural land, the size of the crisis of agriculture driving environmental and ill health or the food system in general driving agriculture and driving ill health and environmental costs is enormous and though there are benefits in many ways to the way we grow and eat food there are so many disbenefits even 
when you can't take into account the benefits. So having cheap food is wonderful, especially if you're poor, but if by driving down the price of food so that the only food that you can afford is food that will make you ill in the long run and will drive climate change to which you as a poor person is more, more vulnerable than a rich person, in what sense is that a real deep benefit? It's a sticking plaster to today's situation. And if the answer, if, if the question is, how can somebody who is poor afford food... Why, why does the answer have to be let's make food cheaper as opposed to let's reduce poverty because mm. poverty is the underlying issue. Mm. And so all of this is the sort of political dimension that this discussion at the FAO is starting to sit into because 10 years ago, FAO would have said we are dealing with the hunger issue in the lowest income countries in the world. And now we're starting to see that everything is interconnected and some of the obesity issues or the land degradation issues, the climate change being driven by our production in the north is related to what's going on down south and vice versa. And so we can't anymore get away with that inconvenience of our old framing, which was FAO deals with the poor world and ignores the rich world because actually, like with climate change, the rich world and the poor world are so interconnected we need to have some common global solutions. Mm. Which stakeholders does the FAO engage with in this discussion? Who's at the table with the FAO in talking about these things? Is it just the member states that are part well, of this? Or? The member states is the, is the whole world, <laughs> sure. in, yeah, in a I sense. Mean, sorry, I mean the governments of those member states. Is, is it a yeah, public but, uh, policy issue or is it are we involving other well, stakeholders? It's all, mm-hmm. really, because if their primary audience at the end of the day is bringing people out of hunger, mm. the consumer, the citizen, is at one level, the stakeholder. Um, and then there are a lot of civil society organisations representing those interests. There are a lot of international NGOs representing environmental issues, which are increasingly getting voices around the table. There's obviously agricultural research organisations and the role of the market is absolutely hugely important in delivering the global food system. So they have a voice around the table as well. So in a sense, there is, there is no, other than through membership, there is no formal relationship between what FAO talks about and the agricultural policy in any one place, mm. including here. But the FAO is the most prominent voice and the only international organisation really with a prominent voice in this space. And so anything that they say or drive at can then be used to shape the individual conversations that we have in any part of the world. So there is a feedback loop between FAO speaking and how the big grain traders uh, manoeuvre their policy to fit into um, the whole kind of framing of the of the issue. So if the next DG goes back to saying our mission is really to tackle hunger and hunger uh, can be solved by growing more food, then that would liberate a whole lot of thinking around 
well, how do we drive the food system to be much more productive in a sustainable way? And then we've got a notion called sustainable intensification, which is a bit of a sleight of hand because, to a certain extent, you cannot sustainably intensify above a certain level because, you know, if you define sustainable agriculture as doing this, whatever this might be, if demand grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, then you convert the whole world into one monoculture farm doing this, and then you lose all of the other bits and pieces of land and forests and so on. So that's not sustainable. Sustainability in the long run has got to encompass the fact that there are limits to what the world can produce. There are limits to what people can eat healthily. There are limits to how people can be healthy um, and not eat enough. So we've got to get agriculture to fit into that space to provide people with sufficient food, not too much, not too little, little sufficient food that is produced in a way that doesn't bankrupt the planet and not just drive ahead the market growth and think that that's going to be the solution. So if we have a new DG that goes back to the old framing, mm. then... That would be like, I don't know, the head of UNEP being a fossil fuel advocate and say, saying, oh, well, the environmental problems, forget all of this, this green stuff. Yeah. Let's just drive ahead in the old way. Equally, if we have somebody who comes in who is a food systems person and a food systems thinker, sees the connectivity uh, more than historically between rich world demand, poor world production, rich world policy, poor world policy, how those are all interconnected. And some of the issues are quite deeply ideologically based. So in the old days, we used to lend money through the International Monetary Fund to developing countries only if they would open up their markets to global trade mm. and encourage them to grow maize for the global market, in a sense, kind of knowing that we will beat them at that game because we're more technologically advanced and we've got more comparative advantage. So we're saying, we will only lend you money if you join our game of this global food system because we can, in a sense, dominate you economically. So we have helped shape some of the negatives by driving this kind of, let's make productivity the entire focus of what we're doing. And for me the future would be very bad if we went back. Mm. Whereas recognising that maize is not necessarily the answer in every country in the world and actually healthcare crises around the world require us to eat better. How do we deliver better? That's eating a diversity of stuff. That's not just eating wheat, rice and maize. That's eating a whole range of things, which means that we have to grow it in different ways. We can't do this large-scale monocultural breadbasket agriculture everywhere in the world mm. because that has negatives. We've got to grow smaller stuff, more diverse stuff, shorter supply chains. That requires us to invest in cooling technology so we can move fruit and vegetables around more easily. It requires us to invest in irrigation. It requires us to not put all of our eggs in the basket of having a $5 million combine harvester and throw everybody off the land from a kind of technologically advanced perspective. That's not to say there isn't a future that has lots of technology in it. It's just not the, the future of food should not just be about these 
small number of very big crops grown at very big scale for very large economic growth, consolidation of monocultural landscapes because that, we've tried that and it hasn't worked, so we've got to move on. Yeah. What are the chances, as you see it, of us going back to the old ways? Is that a real possibility in this upcoming election or in terms of the candidates who are involved or are we likely to hopefully continue this more kind of no I, I think uh, yes yeah, so Graziana de Silva has moved the organization quite a long way towards embracing the food systems approach but there is still a it's a food and agriculture organization and the historical lock-in Path dependencies of it being agricultural, fa- agricultural facing. There are very good reasons for that, especially in parts of the poor world where the food system is effectively what you grow is what you eat, the subsistence livers. But for the globalized food system, being agriculturally led is problematic because most ministries of agriculture see themselves as a production based industry promoting a production-based industry, and they see themselves as sub-industries, as sub-departments of trade, in effect. We are growing this commodity to sell on a global market, and there isn't a ministry of food, that kind of approach that kind of says, well, food is health, Mm. food is environment, food is climate change, food is water, food is air quality, food is social interactions, food is livelihoods, and puts all of the pieces together. So what I would be hoping is that we continue this recognition that food is integral to everybody's lives but food is not just about growing commodities and that whole kind of big agriculture food is about economic growth agriculture is about economic growth I think actually we've got to start recognizing that I mean stop me I I go on too much a single lifestyle related disease with respect to overconsumption diabetes costs more the back of the envelope calculation suggests, costs more to deal with on a global basis than the entire agricultural economy generates. Really? So our on an current... S- basis? Yeah. Wow. So our current system, the costs when you take into account air, water, yeah. climate, health, etc., the costs of it being wrong are multiples of the economic value of how it's done. And that makes no sense in a world that's getting more pressured, more fragile. Climate change is impacting us. We have to think much more about designing the system to reduce the pressure on the climate, to reduce the pressure on land, to reduce the pressure on biodiversity, to produce the, the, the pressure on air and water, and to reduce the pressure on health systems. And so that's a fundamental rethink of the role of food in economic growth in social development, in in sustainable development in general. And in essence, the sustainable development goals make this writ large, but it's very easy to revert back to SDG 2, zero hunger, zero hunger, let's grow more food. And then you kind of could reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so much global political pressure of big food and the countries that make a lot of money out of exporting big food that, you know, as with climate change negotiations and so on, the exporting nations do have a a power to slow things down. Well, this is what I was going to ask. I mean, not to sound like a 1980s charity single, but the idea obviously is that as a, as a world, we sort of need to work together and grow things more intelligently. 
But so far we've been talking about governments or, you know, uh, UN agencies. What about the big big food companies, the big food corporations that must have a <laughs> quite a big stake in the game? They do have a big stake in the game. So how <laughs> how do you persuade them that growing loads of maize and selling it really cheaply and increasing demand isn't the way to go? Well, that is part of the issue. The The need for innovative business models that allow farmers to grow less for more profit is the intellectual challenge that we have to think about. And of course, the, those business models you can see popping up in many places, not just in the in the developed world, but also in the developing world, around this transparency issue. So people who genuinely care about health are less likely to eat beef burgers and more likely to eat high-cost uh, high food like steak. People who genuinely care about health are less likely to eat processed food and they're more likely to eat fruit and vegetables, which is more expensive in general. People who really care about the environment are less likely to buy something with a green label but will ferret around and try and find something that comes from a short supply chain where they've got good credentials associated with it. And you can see these things starting to pop up. Mm. So the transparency issue is a is a way of allowing markets to develop where you're buying products with high health or environmental credentials and you're buying less of them for more money. So that, of course, if you're the, if you're really in poverty, that's not easy to imagine, although it's less of a case in, in say, sub-Saharan Africa, but certainly in Europe, uh, waste is associated with poverty as well as obesity being associated with poverty. And a lot of that is driven by buying family packs of stuff that you don't actually use in time, so you throw out more. You're buying family packs because it's cheaper to buy, but then you waste more. So, you know, there are ways that you can imagine making helping the market to get it right, mm. to sell the right things, less of them for the same amount of uh, consumed food uh, without spending more money. But it, it is a real challenge unless government is leading, mm. people are willing to buy into the fact that overconsumption is not good for them in the long run, unless there is a deep-seated structural change in the way that we do business and food is sold. All of these things have to happen at once. There is no sticking plaster that we can just say, let's do this. Um, I think for the IPCC report that I'm involved in writing at the moment, we pulled up 19 or 20 families of policy that could intervene, including awareness campaigns, planning regulations about where fast food outlets could be um, cited, public procurement for hospitals and schools and prisons, education policy to embed good thinking, maintaining training for children in schools around being able to uh, cook, having climate change and food impacts and stuff on the curriculum, um, subsidies for agricultural policy, uh, the way that money is invested in research for agriculture, trade policy, environmental standards, food standards, taxes, whether it's a sugar tax or a carbon tax, 
you know, food environment planning about whether you can nudge people by putting sweets just by where they're checking out their food and so the child can say, Mummy, I want one of those and put pressure on getting extra. You know, there's there so many things that can be done. None of them's going to work by themselves, mm. but collectively they could probably make quite a big difference. Mm. So just as a thought experiment, <clears throat> I was recently at a meeting joining up marine and terrestrial thinking about food security and one of the things that we talked about there was if you take <clears throat> there are currently about 600 billion dollars of agricultural subsidy around the world most of that is directed at the major grains mm -hmm. if you take some of that subsidy and instead you put it onto aquaculture so growing fish in ponds or lakes or nets in the sea then you would make grain more expensive because you're removing the subsidy. So you'd make cattle and livestock feed more expensive. So that food price would go up, but you'd also then also make fish protein more available and cheaper. So just shifting subsidy might help people change from eating meat with its high carbon footprint, red meat with its high carbon footprint, eat, into eating oily fish as per dietary recommendations. And so, you know, one of those sorts of shifts can work. So the whole FAO thing is not about just dealing with hunger. It sets the frame for all of these global discussions and it sets the frame in a country, anywhere in the world, to say, if you want to drive public health through nutrition, if you want to have a sustainable, equitable world environment to live in, including climate change, this is how we need to organise agriculture into the future. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the intensification agenda, yeah. there's a nice study in the Midwest that showed for every dollar of re revenue from growing corn, it left 50 cents worth of respiratory damage, ill health, because of the nitrous oxides. So if you take that, if you take intensification and this large-scale agriculture and the monocultural deserts and its impact on on uh, biodiversity so if you if you look at the global pesticide statistics and divide it by the number of people on the planet every single citizen on the planet uses on average nearly 300 grams of pesticide active ingredient so that's the equivalent of 30 litres of kind of kitchen bin. During their lifetime or? A year. A year. So if you think every one of us, <laughs> seven and a half billion people, yeah. having a kitchen bin full of pesticide that we yeah. just splash around, no wonder there's a biodiversity crisis. If you think about the amount of nitrogen fertiliser that's used and its pollution of waterways, if you think about the intensification of grain agriculture with all of its negatives to produce feed for livestock that you can then put together in a in a big shed and they don't go outside and because they're in such close proximity they have to be dosed with antibiotics. The intensification of agriculture mm -hmm. is creating so many problems mm -hmm. from a health perspective, from an AMR perspective, from a biodiversity perspective, from a soils perspective, from a climate perspective. And part of the answer to all of these is to change our relationship with food. And if we ate less and ate more healthily, we would reduce demand on the planet. If we didn't grow food that was so cheap to throw away, we wouldn't throw away a third of the food that's produced on the planet. So that would reduce the demand for land. 
if we dealt with both of those things, then we might potentially, it wouldn't happen, but potentially you could free up half of the land that's used for agriculture by just not wasting it or overeating it. If we freed up half the land that is used for agriculture, then we would have space to plant forests mm. to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. So we would deal with climate change instead of driving climate change. So there are so many answers to which mm. getting our relationship with food is right that are socially important questions that we can't run, around, run away from the issue and say agriculture as a means of driving the economy is a good thing because it leads to so many negatives. So, so many bits kind of point in the same direction that we've got to reconfigure our global agricultural system. And the biggest voice in the global agricultural system is the FAO. Do you think eating locally is the answer? As a simple, Because I was just thinking, this reminds me of the last series of The Good Place. Have you seen it? Where nobody's really getting into heaven anymore, and they, they try and work out why, and it's because every small decision that people make has massive it's environmental, yeah. social impacts, like whether you buy that phone or you choose that food, and it's like you just can't get it right. So, what is there that people could be doing on a sort of personal level that would make a big impact? That is it something like trying to buy as locally as possible, or if only it were that simple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying to ask you, like, is there a single no, solution what can we do question? What can we so, do? well, it, it does depend on where you are in the world, obviously. Okay, so if you're, so, if so, you're me in London, what okay, can I do? Okay, if you're in London... Tell me what I can do. Um, eat less red meat. <laughs> yeah. Eat less... Well, eat less livestock produce in general because the conversion efficiency of growing some form of grain... And converting that into food yeah. is not as good as eating the some form of grain in the first place. So eat less red meat, eat less livestock produce in general. Eat much more fruit and vegetables, <coughs> because that way you get the diversity of nutrients in. In general, if you're eating more fruit and vegetables and whole grains and less meat, you, you know, you're effectively crowding out the meat because you're eating more fruit and vegetables or reducing the meat, that's good from an environmental perspective. The greater diversity of things that you eat is often associated with breaking out of this kind of monocultural landscape issue because mm -hmm. you're stimulating a more diverse e ecosystem of production. Eating locally is sometimes a proxy for sustainability, but in general, the transport component of the carbon footprint is between 6 and 12% of the entire component. Mm -hmm. So actually, growing tomatoes in Spain and shipping them here has a lower carbon footprint than growing tomatoes in the UK in a heated greenhouse. Mm -hmm. So growing eating locally, but it's not necessarily the panacea, but eating locally also improves transparency. So you're more likely to make a decision that is in the round sustainable from a health perspective from a livelihoods perspective and from a uh, environmental perspective because you can imagine the way it's grown and you can imagine the supply chain and any washing or processing if you have let's say you have a british chicken pie it would be called british because it's made in britain but the chicken is likely to be low welfare industrialised chicken from Thailand. Right. So eating a British pie 
doesn't there's no transparency in the system to allow you to say is that sustainably produced ingredients and it'll have lots of palm oil in which will have come from chopping down some rainforest or whatever and the chicken will probably be padded out with soil which will have come from chopping down some rainforest or whatever so so it's not it's not simple but the more that you eat that is whole food in the sense of non-processed mm. the more likely you are to be able to understand the sorts of ways that that might be grown the sorts of places it might have come from and the sorts of impacts it will have on your health and the environment. So, going to change my shopping list. Yeah, bring on Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim Benson, thanks so much for your time today. It was really, really fascinating. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Right, well, I'd better... Have a bit of a think about my uh, my Tesco shopping <laughs> my Tesco shopping list. I know, uh, so, uh, I know. Well, locally sourced cheese locally only, sourced. Ben. Yeah, you're gonna um, have to, sorry, you don't have a Tesco shopping list, do you? That's no, I don't. Have so a Tesco you're, a, you're a Cardo shopping list. No, I don't. I don't do online shopping actually. <laughs> we should have asked him whether that was a sustainable way of shopping. Yeah, or not. I think probably the answer would have been no. Yeah, but then it's about waste as well. I'm also very pleased that we managed to do that entire interview without once mentioning Brexit. He did. Oh yeah, he did. <laughs> but we didn't. We were like, no, we're having none. We're, like, of that. we're not. We're not going. We're not, we're not going down there. We're not Tim. going down we're that going road, down, Tim. There was one Brexit land. Uh, thing, <laughs> no, but, uh, you can have that. That's not for us. That's not for us. Not today. But I mean, we may revisit. We may that issue in in coming weeks. Um. So I just want to plug that the latest issue of the world today is up online now. Crack him. Um, what's the What's the uh, The cover stories the story? are two. Well, the two main pieces are. One by Mark English, who um, is part of the Brussels Commission world, um, which is on how basically our Brexit negotiations have been stuffed because we don't speak any other languages and we've missed out on nuances that the European Commission and the negotiators have been coming out on. Mm. And then Marie Leconte has written a great piece on how Westminster functions versus the commission one on gossip one on procedures and how again that's that's caused lots of problems in the negotiating period. love me some gossip exactly love me some procedures <laughs> you, if, yes, there's that's a, true. if there's a way to do something that's like written down that we can just kind of follow <laughs> a sweet spot of thank gossip you very much and an excel spreadsheet yeah absolutely um but no she's her argument is sort of that Westminster politics is run on a wink wink nudge nudge basis go on do us a favor mate oi, Whereas oi. the commission is 27 countries having to sit down and agree to things so it doesn't work way. like that right <laughs> yes. oh, well, that's um, good. but well, they're both uh, available online now at chathamhouse.org wonderful well we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with some new interviews and in the meantime I'm Ben Horton not Jacob Paragelis and I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents <laughs> <laughs>